Section one of Tales of a Wayside Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Tales of a Wayside Inn by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Section one. Prelude. The Wayside Inn. One autumn night in Sudbury Town, across the meadows, bare and brown, the windows of the wayside inn gleamed red with firelight through the leaves of woodbine hanging from the eaves, their crimson curtains rent and thin. As ancient is this hostelry as any in the land may be, built in the old colonial day when men lived in a grander way, with ampler hospitality. A kind of old hobgoblin hall, now somewhat fallen to decay, with weather stains upon the wall, and stairways worn, and crazy doors, and creaking and uneven floors, and chimneys huge and tiled and tall. A region of repose, it seems, a place of slumber and of dreams, remote among the wooded hills. For there no noisy railway speeds, its torch-race scattering smoke and gleeds. But noon and night the panting teams stop under the great oaks that throw tangles of light and shade below, on roofs and doors and window-sills. Across the road the barns display their lines of stalls, their mows of hay. Through the wide doors the breezes blow, the wattled cocks strut to and fro, and, half effaced by rain and shine, the red horse prances on the sign. Round this old-fashioned quaint abode deep silence reigned, save when a gust went rushing down the county road, and skeletons of leaves and dust, a moment quickened by its breath, shuddered and danced their dance of death, and through the ancient oaks o'erhead Mysterious voices moaned and fled. But from the parlour of the inn A pleasant murmur smote the ear, Like water rushing through a weir, Oft interrupted by the din of laughter And of loud applause, And in each intervening pause The music of a violin, The firelight shedding over all The splendour of its ruddy glow, Filled the whole parlour large and low, It gleamed on wainscot and on wall, it touched, with more than wonted grace, Fair Princess Mary's pictured face. It bronzed the rafters overhead, On the old spinet's ivory keys It played inaudible melodies. It crowned the sombre clock with flame, The hands, the hours, the maker's name, And painted with a livelier red The landlord's coat of arms again. And, flashing on the window-pane, Emblazoned with its light and shade, the jovial rhymes that still remain writ nearly a century ago by the great Major Molyneux, whom Hawthorne has immortal made. Before the blazing fire of wood erect the rapt musician stood, and ever and anon he bent his head upon his instrument, and seemed to listen, till he caught confessions of its secret thought, the joy, the triumph, the lament the exultation and the pain. Then, by the magic of his art, he soothed the throbbings of its heart, and lulled it into peace again. Around the fireside, at their ease, there sat a group of friends, entranced with the delicious melodies, 
who from the far-off noisy town had to the wayside inn come down to rest beneath its old oak trees the firelight on their faces glanced their shadows on the wainscot danced and though of different lands and speech each had his tale to tell and each was anxious to be pleased and please and while the sweet musician plays let me in outline sketch them all perchance uncouthly as the blaze with its uncertain touch portrays their shadowy semblance on the wall but first the landlord will i trace grave in his aspect and attire a man of ancient pedigree a justice of the peace was he known in all sudbury as the squire proud was he of his name and race of old sir william and sir hugh and in the parlour full in view his coat of arms well framed and glazed upon the wall in colours blazed he beareth gules upon his shield a chevron argent in the field with three wolf's heads and for the crest a wyvern part per pale addressed upon a helmet barred below the scroll reads by the name of howe and over this no longer bright though glimmering with a latent light was hung the sword his grandsire bore in the rebellious days of yore down there at concord in the fight a youth was there of quiet ways a student of old books and days to whom all tongues and lands were known and yet a lover of his own with many a social virtue graced and yet a friend of solitude a man of such a genial mood the heart of all things he embraced and yet of such fastidious taste he never found the best too good books were his passion and delight and in his upper room at home stood many a rare and sumptuous tome in vellum bound with gold bedight great volumes garmented in white recalling florence pisa rome he loved the twilight that surrounds the borderland of old romance where glitter hauberk helm and lance and banner waves and trumpet sounds and ladies ride with hawk on wrist and mighty warriors sweep along magnified by the purple mist the dust of centuries and of song the chronicles of charlemagne of merlin and the mort d'arthur mingled together in his brain with tales of flores and blanchefleur sir ferumbras sir eglamour sir launcelot sir morgador sir guy sir bevis sir gawain a young sicilian too was there in sight of etna born and bred some breath of its volcanic air was glowing in his heart and brain and being rebellious to his liege after palermo's fatal siege across the western seas he fled in good king bomba's happy reign his face was like a summer night all flooded with a dusky light his hands were small his teeth shone white as sea-shells when he smiled or spoke his sinews supple and strong as oak clean-shaven was he as a priest who at the mass on sunday sings save that upon his upper lip his beard a good palm's length at least level and pointed at the tip shot sideways like a swallow's wings the poets read he o'er and o'er and most of all the immortal four of italy and next to those the story-telling bard of prose who wrote the joyous tuscan tales of the decameron 
that make Fiesole's green hills and vales remembered for Boccaccio's sake. Much, too, of music was his thought, the melodies and measures fraught with sunshine and the open air, of vineyards and the singing sea of his beloved Sicily. And much it pleased him to peruse the songs of the Sicilian muse, bucolic songs by Mele sung in the familiar peasant tongue that made men say, Behold, once more the pitying gods to earth restore Theocritus of Syracuse. A Spanish Jew from Alicant, with aspect grand and grave, was there, vendor of silks and fabrics rare, and attar of rose from the Levant. Like an old patriarch he appeared, Abraham or Isaac, or at least some later prophet or high priest. With lustrous eyes and olive skin, and wildly tossed from cheeks and chin the tumbling cataract of his beard, his garments breathed a spicy scent of cinnamon and sandal blent, like the soft aromatic gales that meet the mariner who sails through the Moluccas and the seas that wash the shores of Celebes. All stories that recorded are by Pierre Alphonse he knew by heart, and it was rumoured he could say the parables of Sandabar and all the fables of Pilpay, or, if not all, the greater part. Well versed was he in Hebrew books, Talmud and Targum, and the law of Kabbalah, and evermore there was a mystery in his looks. His eyes seemed gazing far away, as if in vision or in trance he heard the solemn sackbut play, and saw the Jewish maidens dance. A theologian from the school of Cambridge on the Charles was there. Skilful alike with tongue and pen, he preached to all men everywhere the gospel of the golden rule, the new commandment given to men, thinking the deed and not the creed would help us in our utmost need. With reverent feet the earth he trod, nor banished nature from his plan, but studied still with deep research to build the universal church, lofty as is the love of God and ample as the wants of man. A poet, too, was there, whose verse was tender, musical and terse. The inspiration, the delight, the gleam, the glory, the swift flight of thoughts so sudden that they seem the revelations of a dream. All these were his, but with them came no envy of another's fame. He did not find his sleep less sweet for music in some neighbouring street, nor rustling here in every breeze the laurels of Miltiades. Honour and blessings on his head while living, good report when dead, who, not too eager for renown, accepts, but does not clutch the crown. Last, the musician, as he stood, illumined by that fire of wood, fair-haired, blue-eyed, his aspect blithe, his figure tall and straight and lithe, and every feature of his face revealing his Norwegian race, a radiance streaming from within, around his eyes and forehead beamed. The angel with the violin, painted by Raphael, he seemed. He lived in that ideal world, whose language is not speech but song. Around him evermore the throng of elves and sprites their dances whirled. The stromkarl sang, the cataract hurled its headlong waters from the height, and mingled in the wild delight the scream of sea-birds in their flight, 
the rumour of the forest trees, the plunge of the implacable seas, the tumult of the wind at night, voices of eld, like trumpets blowing, old ballads, and wild melodies through mist and darkness pouring forth, like Elivega's river flowing out of the glaciers of the north. The instrument on which he played was in Cremona's workshops made, by a great master of the past, ere yet was lost the art divine. Fashioned of maple and of pine that in Tyrolean forests vast had rocked and wrestled with the blast, exquisite was it in design, perfect in each minutest part, a marvel of the lutist's art. And in its hollow chamber, thus, the maker from whose hands it came had written his unrivalled name, Antonius Stradivarius. And when he played, the atmosphere was filled with magic, and the ear caught echoes of that harp of gold, whose music had so weird a sound the hunted stag forgot to bound. The leaping rivulet backward rolled, the birds came down from bush and tree, the dead came from beneath the sea, the maiden to the harper's knee. The music ceased. The applause was loud, the pleased musician smiled and bowed, the wood-fire clapped its hands of flame, the shadows on the wainscot stirred, and from the harpsichord there came a ghostly murmur of acclaim, a sound like that sent down at night by birds of passage in their flight, from the remotest distance heard. Then silence followed. Then began a clamour for the landlord's tale. The story promised them of old, they said, but always left untold. And he, although a bashful man, and all his courage seemed to fail, finding excuse of no avail, yielded. And thus the story ran. The Landlord's Tale Paul Revere's Ride Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere, on the 18th of April, in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march, by land or sea, from the town to-night, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light, one if by land, and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said good night, and with muffled oar silently rode to the Charlestown shore, just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man of war, a phantom ship, with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black bulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed to the tower of the church, up the wooden stairs with stealthy tread, to the belfry chamber overhead, and startled the pigeons from their perch on the sombre rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade, up the trembling ladder steep and tall, 
to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen, and look down a moment on the roofs of the town, and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead, in their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still, that he could hear, like a sentinel's tread, the watchful night wind, as it went creeping along from tent to tent, and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour, and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead, for suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away, where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide, like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred, with a heavy stride, on the opposite shore walked Paul Revere. Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near. Then impetuous stamped the earth, and turned and tightened his saddle-girth. But mostly he watched, with eager search, the belfry tower of the old North Church, as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and sombre and still. And lo, as he looks, on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light, he springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes, till full on his sight a second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark, and beneath, from the pebbles, in passing, a spark, struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light, the fate of a nation was riding that night. And the spark struck out by that steed, in his flight, kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village, and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic, meeting the ocean tides, and under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford town. He heard the crowing of the cock, and the barking of the farmer's dog, and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed, and the meeting-house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare, as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed, who at the bridge would be first to fall, who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket-ball. You know the rest. In the books you have read, how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road, and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo for evermore.
for born on the night wind of the past through all our history to the last in the hour of darkness and peril and need the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of paul revere interlude the landlord ended thus his tale then rising took down from its nail the sword that hung there dim with dust and cleaving to its sheath with rust and said this sword was in the fight the poet seized it and exclaimed it is the sword of a good knight though homespun was his coat of mail what matter if it be not named joyeuse collada durindale excalibur or arondite or other name the books record your ancestor who bore this sword as colonel of the volunteers mounted upon his old grey mare seen here and there and everywhere to me a grander shape appears than old sir william or what not clinking about in foreign lands with iron gauntlets on his hands and on his head an iron pot all laughed the landlord's face grew red as his escutcheon on the wall he could not comprehend at all the drift of what the poet said for those who had been longest dead were always greatest in his eyes and he was speechless with surprise to see sir william's plumed head brought to a level with the rest and made the subject of a jest and this perceiving to appease the landlord's wrath the other's fears the student said with careless ease the ladies and the cavaliers the arms the loves the courtesies the deeds of high emprise i sing thus ariosto says in words that have the stately stride and ring of armed knights and clashing swords now listen to the tale i bring listen though not to me belong the flowing draperies of his song the words that rouse the voice that charms the landlord's tale was one of arms only a tale of love is mine blending the human and divine a tale of the decameron told in palmieri's garden old by fiametta laurel-crowned while her companions lay around and heard the intermingled sound of airs that on their errands sped and wild birds gossiping overhead and lisp of leaves and fountains fall and her own voice more sweet than all telling the tale which wanting these perchance may lose its power to please end of section one